It's Monday, November 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden got a big win when the House finally passed the infrastructure bill, but any political gains will take time to be seen. Still in flux for now is the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better plan, and polls continue to show that Biden's approval rating keeps dropping. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this. A federal judge halts the vaccine requirement for companies with 100 or more employees, and things don't look good for a Democratic majority as many are retiring before the midterms. Next, we'll continue to look at how the great resignation is affecting the job market. While many have left to pursue better wages and working environments, millions of Americans have been left behind and still can't find work. Millions of jobs are available, but they are not connecting with those who need them. Carla Miller, work advice columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for those that got left behind and the flip side, what employers did to hold on to their workers. Trust, appreciation, and support go a long way. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Folks, yesterday, I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that we took a monumental step forward as a nation. The Build Back Better bill, which we're going to be working on now, and this bill are, are all designed to give ordinary people a fighting chance. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, the big news, the big win for President Biden and his administration and for Democrats, too, I guess. Everybody all around, I guess we could say the House finally passed the infrastructure bill. This is the hard infrastructure bill, $550 billion of new spending. It's going to bring some much needed improvements around the country. Part of it, though, that's still unclear is the $1.75 trillion spending bill that trying to get through and also unclear what benefits this might have for them at all. You know, infrastructure takes some time to do, so there won't be any immediate things happening right away. So it is a win for anybody who drives on a road or a bridge or takes mass transit. There's going to be a historic level of money from the federal government pouring into projects, many that have been neglected for years and are badly in need of being updated or replaced or built new. And so it is a pretty substantial piece of legislation, the largest surface transportation bill that Congress has ever passed. So when we talk about nuts and bolts, we talk about what will actually happen. This is going to be a historic level of spending for for our nation's infrastructure. Now, when we talk about the politics of it, that's less clear. We get the sense from polling that the American people feel like Biden and the Democratic-controlled Congress just isn't getting things done. It's not getting the right things done. It's unclear if they're going to say, all right, great for doing this and reward them with more favorable viewpoints of them, or if they're going to say, I don't see those shovels in the ground yet, so I don't believe it until I see it. Um, That's a big big question that's left to be be determined. There was an NBC News poll last week that said 42% approved of President Biden and what's going on. There was a USA Today Suffolk poll that came out today, I believe, that put his approval rating at 38%. So, I mean, those approval numbers are not looking good. That's really bad for the president. I mean, we normally see presidents' numbers dips. I think that 
partly what's hurting his approval numbers is Afghanistan. Quite a bit of people felt that that was very badly handled. They felt that the withdrawal was not done correctly, even if they did want to leave. Um, and that's going to take some time to uh, see if people forgive him for that, if they forget that it happened, or um, if by the time we get to next year's midterms, they're still remembering that and they still think uh, that he didn't do a good job and don't trust him and his party to be in charge. What are we expecting for the spending bill? There seems to bill, still be a lot of fighting about it. I think Nancy Pelosi said she might want to vote before Thanksgiving, but uh, still a lot to be done there. That's right. So a lot of this is the sort of proverbial sausage making that's happening now. This $1.75 trillion bill has a bunch of stuff that they crammed in it again at the last minute on the House side. They're going to have to get what they call a CBO score or an official price tag, how much this costs before they vote on it. That was sort of the last minute wrangling. So it's going to take them a couple of weeks to do so. And that's why Speaker Pelosi said she was thinking maybe the week of Thanksgiving to vote. At this point, it looks like something is going to happen. They're going to come to some agreement. I think this $1.75 trillion that we're seeing at now, probably likely to be about that size by the time they get done, could shrink a little bit, could grow a little bit. But I think that they're going to be in that neighborhood. And, and this is just something that all of the Democrats, for the most part, like. So I'd be really surprised if they don't eventually get it done. <laughs> well, we'll see on that one. The other thing that happened over the weekend on Saturday, actually, an appeals court temporarily halted the vaccine requirement for businesses with 100 or more employees. Uh, I think there's about 27 states that have filed lawsuits on all of this. The administration says they think it's going to withstand legal challenges, but this is the the next phase for the, for that vaccine mandate right there. That's right. I think that we always knew we were going to see legal challenges to this mandate. And there's probably a little bit of hope on the administration's part that some companies just go ahead and implement it anyway, given the uncertainty about whether or not it's going to survive a court challenge. But we are going to see this play out in the courts. There's arguments constitutionally for and against it. Uh, and I think it's probably going to be a precedent setting case. There is one case in history about vaccine mandates on a state level, but this is a really novel way to try to impose a vaccine mandate for much of the country. That uh, deadline for that is supposed to be January 4th, but the one that's going to happen before that is the mandate for federal workers and contractors. That's on November 22nd. There's a lot of federal agencies that still have yet to get a lot of their people vaccinated. I think um, federal law enforcement says that only about 60% of them are vaccinated. Homeland Security, 64% are vaccinated. And I think some of the intelligence agencies, they say that uh, 20% of them are unvaccinated. So kind of on their way, but uh, that deadline is approaching even quicker. That deadline is approaching, and we know from the Pentagon that there were also holdouts, uh, particularly when you look at the military reserves. They have a little yeah. bit longer than November, but um, pretty high holdout numbers there. So uh, this is going to be real crunch time, and it's going to be interesting to see. Do we see a delay in the deadline? Do we start to see people... Um, losing their jobs or contractors who sever their contracts with the federal government. Some of them can't because that's their only business. Um, but this is definitely a, a trying time for these mandates to see if they can get them over the finish line. Let's look at a little bit of the fallout from Election Day last Tuesday. The Democrats uh, took a beating, uh, you know, really didn't uh, go their way. And um, going into the midterms, you know, they're worried. They're worried about holding their seats. But a lot of we're here, what we're hearing is that over a dozen Democrats are probably thinking about retiring or running for a different office rather than staying in the House and running for a re-election there. Uh, so that doesn't look good when the the majority in the House right now is 221 to 213. 
Yeah, let's be really clear. The odds of Democrats holding the House are really long. Yeah. Uh, for starters, there's redistricting, and they don't control the process in most states, and they could cease their majority loss because districts are drawn in a way that uh, they're no longer competitive. So um, it's going to be tough on Democrats. And one of the signs that Democrats know it's going to be tough on Democrats is that we have these retirements. We have more than a dozen House members, House Democrats, who have already retired uh, or announced they will retire at the end of this term. Um, and we expect to see more. And it's likely that Tuesday's results with Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia and Democrats barely winning in New Jersey, uh, that they are going uh, to accelerate, that some of these House members are going to look at the political landscape and say it's just too tough um, and decide to bow out. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Who's a professional communications manager who you know knows how to use words and presumably knows how to use the right keywords to get through all the automatic gatekeepers and applicant tracking systems to make contact with employers for jobs and to highlight her skills and her experience. So it's odd that she wouldn't be getting more hits in the first place. Joining us now is Carla Miller, work advice columnist at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the last time we spoke, Carla, we were talking about the great resignation and, uh, you know, a lot of people leaving their work because of bad working conditions. Maybe they wanted something better. Maybe they even got let go because of the pandemic. There was a, a number of reasons why people were leaving their jobs. And last time we, we spoke, we talked about people who had pretty good success in finding something else, finding something better, something that suited them. But the flip side to that coin are millions of Americans that still can't find work and haven't had that good success and, and that luck in finding something. And we're seeing this weird thing because we're seeing how there's millions of job openings available. There's millions of people that need jobs, but somehow they're just not finding each other. So, Carla, what are we seeing with this side of the uh, things? That pretty much sums it up. We have people who are looking for jobs, looking for better jobs, different jobs, and they're submitting applications and not getting any responses back. Um, some folks told me they, they've submitted hundreds of applications over the past year, and they may not even get a rejection notice or a no thank you. They just don't hear anything. Or the ones who do land interviews, once they get through, sometimes they're landing interviews, and then the employer is telling them something very different from what the job ad said. The pay is lower or the hours are not as, uh, not as good or as reliable as the ad indicated. So they're getting sort of a bait and switch when they do get through. You profiled a woman named Carol. She was a uh, corporate communications manager who kept a lot of de very detailed records. And I guess she sent out 240 resumes and only got 17 interviews out of that. I mean, that's pretty crazy to think that the rate of return is so low that way. I mean, it's great that she's getting interviews. I mean, that's the, the first question is, if you're not getting inter interviews, is to look at how you're filling out applications. But this is someone who's a professional communications manager who uh, you know knows how to use words and presumably knows how to use the right keywords to get through all the automatic gatekeepers and applicant tracking systems to make contact with employers for jobs and to highlight her skills and her experience. So it's odd that she wouldn't be getting more hits in the first place. Yeah. Tell me. And, and she said, you know, of the, the 17 interviews and then a certain number were just 
no response, or they'd write back and say, oh, we already filled this. Some people said she was overqualified. Some said she was underqualified. There's no consistent answer. Yeah, there's no consistent rhyme or reason to why she wasn't having good results. Tell me a little bit about these applicant sorting technologies that companies use, because that seems to be a big thing where people just aren't being matched up right. Uh, and as you mentioned, these companies are desperate for people. You know, somebody might be well qualified, but that match never happened with uh, some of this technology they might be using. So the way that works is again, employers get so many applications that they are not able to handle them all with just, you know, human, human skills and human gatekeepers. There's just too many to go through. So they use these applicant tracking systems, resume scanners that, automatically scan resumes and they're looking for certain things like certain keywords that match up for the job opening. They match keywords in the resume with keywords in the position that they're looking to fill. Um, that That's one example. So you have to be careful that you're using, you know, the right kinds of words that these program systems would be likely to pick up. And if you're, if you're using the right keywords, it should at least get you through that first phase. They may be scanning for other things. I don't know, like certain, maybe they're scanning for certain schools or certain dates, or I, I, I'm not sure exactly how, right. how it depends on how you program the scanner to filter things and what parameters you set. Those keywords are really important to try to match up. And obviously, there are going to be things that pertain to that job. So uh, maybe some, uh, some good research on that might, might help a lot of people. Another thing that uh, is a big factor in this could be age discrimination. And and I found that pretty interesting because we're going through the hiring process on our end, on our company, and you do see resumes with people of all age ranges. And this is one of the things that a lot of people uh, think might be working against them. Uh, You know, they might think someone's going to come on just for a few months and then quit right away. That's not necessarily the case in in a lot of cases. The thing about age discrimination is it's so hard to prove. It's really hard to say, did they not call me back because they looked at the date that I graduated? Um, even people are not putting the dates of graduation or other dates on the resumes to try to avoid that, to try to avoid being filtered out because of their age. But then they get to the interview stage, everything seems to go well, but then they find out later that a, a younger candidate was hired. Say the person's picture was posted on the, the employer's website. And it's, just, and it's hard to see you know, a reason besides age that they didn't get hired. Now, the employers may be thinking, oh, this, you know, this older worker is going to want more pay because they have more experience. Or they're, you know, maybe they're not going to stick around long. Maybe they're going to retire soon. Or they're they're overqualified. They're going to get bored and move on to the next to the next big thing. Or you know, in blatant cases, it's just I'm not comfortable managing somebody who's this age. I'm worried that they're not going to listen to me or respect me. It could be any number of reasons, and it's it's hard to pin down and it's really hard to prove. And it's so weird as we we've been talking about to the point, right? There are millions millions of jobs that are open, and candidates are coming through, and we fall into some of the old tropes too. You know, just not wanting to hire people for any crazy number of reasons. And and you mentioned the bait and switch stuff with compensation. Those are all red flags too. Uh, You know, you're bringing me in, you're, you're changing the terms of a supposed deal or what the initial offering was. People are wary of getting into the same bad deal that they're trying to escape. You know, the, the great resignation has big undertones of workers trying to improve their conditions, trying to get to those better situations. And if you're coming in like that, you know, like I said, it's just a red, red flag right away. 
Exactly. I mean, you, you you want to know that you can trust the employer to give you the straight story and a straight deal. And I mean, if employers could post the salary range on the on the position in the first place, it might head off a lot of this. But then people who aren't qualified for the position might see the salary and decide they're going to go for it anyway. So it's you can understand the employer's position, but. As an employee, as a candidate, you don't want to you don't want to start off on that foot making bad faith deals exactly. with someone who offers you one thing and then offers you another once to have you in the door. Exactly. I, you know, I, Carla, I'm I'm so glad we were able to talk to you because your your last three columns kind of explored this issue from all three angles, right? People that left that had the success, people that left that didn't have the success, and the third angle of this is on the employer side and how they kept people at their companies, at their businesses. And, uh, you know, higher wages, uh, good wages and benefits obviously is, is a very important thing, a very good motivator. But, you know, the trust that you have with your employees, the appreciation you show them and the support you give them are other big things that were really uh, key to the success of keeping employees, retaining these employees for a lot of companies. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, obviously you want good wages, you want good benefits. That's that's the starter. That's the starting point for a good job. But beyond that, employees, you know, especially since the pandemic, since so many people were working from home, working remotely, they proved that they could be as productive working remotely as in the office. And so they don't they don't see the need to go into the office except um, once in a while. But there are employers who say, no, we, re- we really want them there. We want to be able to keep an eye on them or we feel that they collaborate better when they're there in person. And to employees, it comes across feeling that they don't trust us to get the job done or they want us to put in FaceTime. They want us to just be there for a certain number of hours you know, to check that box. But the employers that are most successful at attracting and retaining employees say, you know, we don't care exactly what hours you work. I mean, if you have to serve a client during certain hours, that's one thing. But if it's a matter of you doing a project, you know, we don't care what hours you get it done in when you start and when you clock out. We just care that you do a good job and you turn in a good product. Yeah. And your story, it was a marketing firm that was doing something like that. And they said, hey, we're going to pay you your 40 hours for this project or whatever it is even if you get it done sooner. And, and, you know, for somebody, obviously you can't do this in all workplaces, but, right. But, you know, for those employees in that company right there, that's, that's nice. You know, let's get it done. The quality of the work is good. We're still going to get paid. And then other things too, you know, supporting them in, in other ways, even non-monetary appreciation. You mentioned in the article, there's a lot of ways that these companies were really helping their employees out. Right. I mean, and as you say, there's some jobs where I just, Working remotely is not an option. Working your own hours is not an option. Um, I heard from a nonprofit that was serving uh, developmentally disabled adults. They have to be there in home to provide care and help these people. And, you you know, you you can't just set your own hours with that. But what the employer tried to do was provide hazard pay and bonuses. They got a a PPP loan, Paycheck Protection Program loan, that they used to pay for hazard pay and bonuses for these folks. And they also tried to do as many things, show appreciation in as many ways as possible outside of that, Um, calling them on their anniversaries, having little, you know, celebrations and little, uh, just little little tokens of gratitude at work. And something that studies have shown over and over again is that money's great, bonuses are great, but what employees really seem to find valuable, what they, what really makes them feel valued at work is having their work acknowledged 
and being treated as though they are valuable members of the team who are making good contributions and they're being noticed for that. Carla Miller, work advice columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>